Well, I'm grateful for this morning and that I get to preach here because we are going to hear Jesus on his last day of work. I've had last days of work several times. My kids always have last days of work at school, and they're usually pretty useless, <laughs> right? I mean, who really works on their last day of work? Most nobody. Uh, they watch movies. My, my kids know more movies because they watch them in school, especially as the school year ends and the teachers are just cleaning things up and getting their grades in and ignoring the kids and putting on a movie. But that is not the way Jesus spent his last day of work. Now, in one sense, Jesus has always been working as the eternal Son of God and always will be working. But his last earthly ministry, day of work, is what we look at today. It's an awesome way he puts in his last day at work. So if you'd open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, we will see some incredible teachings, really three sections we'll be looking at this morning in Luke chapter 19 and going into chapter 20 all the way through verse 18. And we, we need to ask the Lord to help us to hear from him because it's easy to actually become judgmental when you listen to him rebuke these religious leaders, and, and we don't want that to happen. We want receptive hearts. None of us is exempt from Jesus' teaching that we hear this morning. So let's ask him to speak to us. Lord, we love you, and we love your word. It's like food to starving men and women, and we're grateful that you've given it to us, and it feeds us so wonderfully. But Lord, we need to be receptive. We need to realize our hunger. We need to realize our neediness. We need to realize how desperately we need to hear from you. We hear from so many different voices these days. We need to hear from you. Lord, I, I'm not sure most of the time why you've chosen frail, fallen preachers to be your messengers, but that's what you've decided to do. So I pray that you would take the message this morning and make it a message from you that changes our hearts, that transforms every one of us. Lord, we don't want to leave here the same as when we came in, or else why bother coming at all? So Lord, would you use once again your powerful word as the Spirit works, particularly and individually in each of our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last time we saw Jesus as we were preaching through Luke, he was weeping. Weeping over his people, particularly the Jewish people, as he looks at Jerusalem entering the city and weeps over their inability to recognize, to know the way of peace. And to know the visitation of God has come through his ministry. They don't recognize him. Far from not recognizing him as the visitation of God and the way of peace, they reject him. They, the religious leaders, the people who should know better than anybody else, who know the Hebrew scriptures better than anybody else, and know the messianic prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling to a T, the ones who should know best and be leading the people to recognize the, vision, the visitation of God and the way of peace, they're opposing him the most. And so the judge of all the earth weeps over this rejection. Let's actually read it straight from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. 
As we said a few weeks ago, this is not just, just crying, this is weeping. The king weeps over his people's rejection of him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, the apostle John tells us. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. On Jesus' last day of work here, he, in his earthly ministry, he's highlighting the hard-heartedness the blindness of his people who were responsible for this condition. He weeps over it. And then he moves into his temple and shows that it is indeed his temple. And he entered the temple, verse 45. And he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages here in this rebuke of these people who have turned the house of prayer, the meeting place of God, into a commercialized cave of robbers, a robber's cave, literally. He's rebuking what they have done to the temple. Now, it's important to back up and say, well, what is the temple? What's it supposed to be? It's the meeting place of God. Now, to be sure, God is everywhere present with his whole being. You cannot go anywhere without the full presence of God there. But God chooses to reveal himself in particular ways, in personal ways, face-to-face kind of relational ways in particular times and places. And the temple was that place, foreshadowed by the tabernacle as they moved around, but finally built in Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the city of Zion, the place you meet with God. God is generally present all the time, but personally present. And he has a way of meeting with him beyond just his everywhere present being. And the temple was that place where you met with God. That's why Jesus says, this place is intended to be a house of prayer. Now this selling is going on here. And you could see the people who are selling saying, why are you so upset about selling the very things people need based on God's commands so they could offer sacrifices? There are people who are providing what God has said they need here. They're selling the sacrifices, the lambs and the, the doves and, and the salt even and the required temple tax that the Old Testament actually requires. And you could see these money changers saying, Jesus, don't you know the Old Testament? Don't you know that these things are required and we're just making them more accessible? But what had happened was these Old Testament regulated necessities had become a means of materialistic selfish gain. The temple tax even became a way of extortion. And human selfish self-interest 
distorted all of this. And it was probably in the court of the Gentiles, which meant the one place the Gentiles could find access to God was now like the mall at Christmas time. Chaos and confusion and not a place of meeting with God. The temple was a place you communed with God. That's why he highlights the prayer of meeting with God. It's communing with him. And he said, you've turned it into this materialistic, ritualistic religiosity. You're missing the whole point of the temple. Meeting with God, and he won't have it. Now, Luke's version of this, all three of the similar gospels, not John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, shared this story. And Luke, interestingly, is the most, most brief portrayal of it. He doesn't include some things the other Gospels do. But let's let Luke speak for himself. I, I don't think it's good when we preach the Gospels to constantly trying to, to harmonize them. But, but just let Luke speak in the way he wants to. He emphasizes the house of prayer here. He emphasizes this communion with God. Why do we commune with God there? Well, at the heart of this communion with God is the ability that God provides through sacrifice. The temple was the place of sacrifice. And you need to realize when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, like Jesus prophesied would happen, there was a shift in Jewish worship from sacrifice-oriented, temple-focused worship to synagogue-focused worship and Torah, or teaching-oriented worship. Because they couldn't sacrifice without the temple anymore. And so this shift took place, but you met with God, why? Because he provided priests, and you brought a lamb for sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. God doesn't just throw up his, his, his hands and say, oh, who cares about human sin and evil? You don't, do you? I hope not. What kind of God would that be if he didn't care about human rebellion? and evil in this world, and sin and rejection in this world. Imagine if someone completely rejected and offended and abandoned you, and then just sauntered into your presence saying, saying, what's up? And tried to pick up right where he left off. You'd say, no, we need to deal with this broken relationship. We want to just act like nothing happened. It needs to be dealt with. This fracture needs to be healed. And God's way of healing is atonement. That's what happens in the temple. Communion with God because he reconciles us to himself through the atoning work of the sacrifice. But even in the Old Testament, there was a realization that those millions of sacrifices that happened through thousands of years could never actually ultimately take away the sin that we have. Jesus becomes that ultimate sacrifice. Jesus becomes that ultimate priest. Jesus becomes that ultimate temple. You see, that's what's going on here. Jesus says, my house. This is my house. That's an astounding thing to say. The temple is his house. Luke wants us to know here, Jesus wants us to know here that the temple's his. <laughs> Remember he said he's Lord of the Sabbath? He's Lord of the temple. He's Lord of the sacrifice. He's Lord of all. That's who he is. He is the one who comes and is incensed that his house of prayer 
The place you meet with God personally, relationally, has become a robber's cave, a materialistic religious practice only. But we can be reconciled with him. And he foretells of the temple destruction in just the next chapter. Look at 21, 5, and 6. Look what he says. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, for these things that you see, the days will come upon when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Just what he says in the previous passage in 41 and following. The temple's going to be destroyed. Why? Because we're actually not going to need it anymore. Because the true temple has come. Because the true priest has come. Because the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come. The meeting place with God is God's Son who has come and fulfilled all of these foreshadowings of Him. As grand and glorious as the temple was, it is a mere faint reflection of the ultimate temple of God. The ultimate meeting place with God that is God Himself in Christ. The temple cleansing talked about in John 2. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up. And the Jews say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, Herod's version. And will you raise up it up in three days? And then, you know what it says? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the words Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the true meeting place with God because he is the true sacrifice of God that alone is sufficient for our sinful condition. Jesus is now how we meet with God. The word became flesh, what? And dwelt among us. We can dwell with God because he dwelled with us. That's the astounding central truth of the Christian faith that God sent his son, God in flesh, to dwell with us so we could dwell with him. And through his perfect righteousness and sacrificial death, we are able to have by faith union with him and fellowship with God in a way that made the temple seem like almost nothing in the fellowship that happened here. And Jesus is the perfect priest and sacrifice. He said the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Hebrews 10 says, every day the priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. And it goes on in Hebrews 10. Therefore, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So we have a great high priest. We have a temple. We have a sacrifice that alone is sufficient. That's who Jesus is for us. He gives us this access because of who he is. And then on the heels of this, the persecution, the opposition, the rejection continues. This rejection he was weeping over now is highlighted in the response of the religious leaders again, verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Is that amazing? They want to take him out. But the public 
affirmation of Jesus prevents him from doing it. The people are hanging on his words. And they want to hang him. But the popular opinion keeps them from doing what they wanted to do. This is opposition that is reprehensible. Jesus' authority is questioned next. Watch. One day, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the good news, the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, what are these things? Well, I think specifically here, not just his whole ministry, but his entrance into Jerusalem with obvious Messiah imagery, with worship and praise being given to him by his people. And when they said to him, keep your people from saying these things, he says, if they don't say it, the rocks will cry out. And then they're no doubt also thinking about flipping over the tables of the money changers and cleansing his temple and indeed saying it's his temple that he has the authority over. And he says, where are you getting this authority? Where's it come from? How dare you? Who do you think you are? And Jesus, once again, with his standard brilliance, Jesus is just flat out brilliant. He's not just loving. He's not just kind and humble. He is brilliant. He reads hearts. He knows how to respond. He says the right thing. You know, his disciples were blown away by this all the time. They'd expect him to reject some sinner or tax collector or prostitute, and he'd love him and hug him and heal him. And then they'd expect him to genuflect before the religious leaders, and he'd blast them. He won't get in their traps that they're constantly trying to set for him. Watch how Jesus rolls here. Verse 3. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. You know the old truism, don't answer a question with a question. Not really true. Sometimes it's a great thing to do. You know, question cliches, please. Like, don't question anyone's motives. Where'd we get that idea? Not from the Bible. You don't ultimately know, but it's important to know what's motivating people, including yourself. He answered, I'll ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now you need to realize that John the Baptist was also deeply opposed by the leaders and they beheaded him. They so opposed him. But the people recognized divine authority in John's ministry. And because Jesus realizes that John's ministry and his ministry come from the same divine authority, ultimately to the authority that Jesus as the divine son has in himself. But the bottom line is, did you accept John's ministry or not? Because we have the same authority in our ministries. He set the stage for me. And look at these scoundrels. Verse 5, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? They're playing a chess match here. And if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, and we don't want that, right? For they're convinced that John was not was a prophet. So they answered, 
that they did not know where it came from. <laughs> no comment. Politician's favorite ploy, right? No comment. I don't have any comment on that. Cowards. Not driven by principle, not driven by truth, but driven by selfish interest. Their own ideals and the right, right timing of saying what they really think. So good old Jesus says this, look at verse 8. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You're, you don't have honest questions, do you? Your questions don't have an ounce of honesty in them. You don't want an answer to that question that's true. You want one that will trap. You want one that will meet your ends and your means. And, and I must tell you, I've been so grieved as I've thought about these words of Jesus that he's not going to play this game with them. He's not going to do this with them. His authority is questioned. He comes with the authority of God himself. And the people are hanging on every word. And the leaders hated him because he was taking their power and their position. And they actually benefited financially, even from the selling going on in the temple. And their ministry was for selfish gain. And the Bible couldn't be more clear that ministry should never be for selfish gain. And the American church needs to hear this more than anyone. Have you ever been on the Instagram site, Preachers in Sneakers? I can only take it for about 15 seconds before I want to throw up or get a flamethrower. All it is is preachers with sneakers on, and then he just puts how much they're worth, and if you want to buy them on eBay, $1,200, $2,000, I went on it this morning just to make sure he was still up to it. Yeah, there was one with this guy named Jesse Duplantis bragging about his literal gold-buckled sneakers. He tells the cameraman during his sermon recently to get a close-up of the sneakers because he paid a fortune for them. You know, we tend to focus on Sister Norma, this mockery of Christianity and this man dressed as a woman getting an award at the capital of California and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence that are going to be honored at the Dodgers game. We tend to focus on that, and God won't be mocked. That kind of perversion grieves God, to be sure, and it should grieve us as well. But when I look at the focus of the ministry of the prophets and Jesus... It's not Sister Norma. It's Jesse Duplantis. It's religious leaders who should be leading the people of God in the right way. And it's all about them. It's all about selfish interest. America has created the celebrity preacher. America has birthed the prosperity gospel that's spread around the world. And it grieves the heart of God when the people who should know better don't, and they lead people astray. Jesus is the senior pastor of every church. Jesus is the head pastor, the lead pastor, whatever you want to call it, of every church. And any other leader is an under-shepherd of the great shepherd. He's the head, we're the body, and it is not about image. It's not about selfish, greedy interest. We are caretakers of God's vineyard, which is where Jesus takes us next. Jesus is established. He has this authority. It comes from heaven, the same place John's ministry comes from. And he tells the parable of the vineyard now. 
to really wake us up. To show us that we are the caretakers, not the owners of the vineyard. It's not just religious leaders who need to hear this, it's all of us. Verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable, probably the last parable Jesus ever told in his earthly ministry. And here's what it is. A man planted a vineyard. Now when people heard this in this context, they no doubt would have thought about the Old Testament prophets talking about God as the one who plants a vineyard. And that vineyard is Israel. Most parables are not allegories. Most parables don't have one-to-one correlations like this one does so explicitly. This one is not hard to figure out. They knew, and you'll see by their response, exactly what these images meant. God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is his people, the nation of Israel. And the caretakers are the leaders of God's people to whom he is speaking right now. And he says, a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When this time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? And now he quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus has the authority. Here's the point of this. God planted the vineyard. God is the creator. God is the owner of everything. We are caretakers. We are the farmers that that answer to him for, for whether or not we're tending his farm, creation, everything we have, everything we are is a gift from him. He's the owner. We're the caretakers. That means we do it by his rules, for his profit, his glory, according to his word. So the authority of Jesus now, we realize, is the authority of his word. And this is where everything so often gets right down to. Does the word of God that points us to the word made flesh have authority in your life? Does it call the shots of your life, of our life as a church, a local church, of ministries? I know the Woodruffs believe this, right? That's why it's such a joy to partner with grace partners like the Woodruffs. I got to tell you, I I meet a lot of people in ministry. And ministry can be incredibly hard. 
but it can be a great place to hide in your laziness. It can. People don't check up on it. They just assume. You're like, Steve Brown, this preacher, he, he said he was a pastor before he was a Christian. And he was a pastor in Florida. And, and he said, I can talk. And so I'll have my sermon done by Monday afternoon. And then I'll spend the rest of the week water skiing and golfing. And on the way out of the church, people say, oh, pastor, you look so tired. You should get some rest. And he is tired because he's been water skiing and golfing. And then he said, then I became a Christian. And it was the hardest job in the world to be a pastor. But, you see, sometimes I, I meet ministers, people who are in ministry, and I think, what do you actually do? I'm not sure what you do. <laughs> what, what are you up to? Are you getting after it? What's motivating? I hear a lot about strategy and vision and planning and all this stuff. But you know what the bottom line is? Here it is. The affection that Martin demonstrated when he talked about this man who was not even an atheist. Who now loves Jesus and who wants to read the Bible with Martin. See, that's the heart of ministry. Not your sneakers. Not your strategy. Not your impressive ministry that's named after you. But a heart like Jesus has as he weeps over Jerusalem for people to come to saving knowledge of Jesus. That's the bottom line, people. Do you love lost people? Do you preach the good news to them like their lives dependent on it? Because it does. That's the bottom line in all of this. And Jesus knows this. And he comes with a tender weeping message and a hard message of judgment for those who continue in their rejection. We are caretakers of the vineyard. Jesus is the foundation stone of the building, God's building, he's mixing metaphors here. This vineyard is this place God has made, creation, the people of God. It's like Simeon's message in Luke 2, remember? Simeon says to Mary and Joseph when he sees the baby in the temple as a baby, this baby has brought salvation to me and to all people of all nations. And this baby will cause the rising of some and the falling of others. This baby will be the source of salvation for those who trust him, and he will be the source of eternal judgment and crushing for those who don't. There's no passivity with Jesus. There, there's no neutrality with Jesus. There's no, yeah, Jesus, I'm chill with Jesus. He's either Savior and Lord, or he's nothing to you. There's nothing in between those two options. The salvation's been universally revealed. He's revealed it to all people. It, everyone is without excuse in this. And Simeon points us to it at the beginning of this gospel, and Jesus is bringing us here again. And he'll cause some to rise. And he'll be the source of crushing for others. And there's a warning here. There's a threatening cloud in the sky. He's saying, don't think it's about religion or even ethical realities. It's about knowing God in Christ and meeting with him through his atoning work. He becomes a sanctuary for his people. And Jesus is applying all these Old Testament passages to himself. And the New Testament through and through keeps talking about Jesus as either being the source of salvation or the source of judgment. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. If we don't believe God's holy and we don't believe man is sinful, we won't have a need for atonement. But Jesus provides the atonement we desperately need. And he reveals the hearts of men, whether or not we really trust him, whether or not he really has authority in our lives. So here's here's the big question. To not reject Jesus means to accept him, to trust him, to depend on him, to surrender to him, to give him the authority that these people didn't want to give him. Like anybody who can use this as some anti-Semitic nonsense or some judgmental, pharisaical rebuke of the Pharisees without examining their own hearts as God's been doing to mine all week as I've thought about this passage is missing the whole point. Jesus wants to rearrange the furniture, not just in the temple, but in your heart, in our lives. And does he have the authority to do that? Because there are some things in our lives we cling to idolatrously that he needs to remove or kick over or crush. Does Jesus have the authority in our lives? Does he call the shots in everything? How we use our intellect, our relational ability, our sense of humor, our money, our sexuality, our opportunities. Our recreation time, our entertainment choices. Is Jesus Lord of all of it? He needs to be. That just goes with trusting him in saving faith. Jesus is the boss. And I'll tell you, raising kids, it's amazing how they just say, why do you get to tell me what to do and I don't get to tell you what to do? It's been a constant battle. And you know, you don't want to just pull rank, but come, sometimes it's like, because I'm dad. And your son, right? We got to get that relationship right. If we get that twisted, everything else will get messed up, and we'll start telling God what to do and what he should be like and what he better be like if he's going to get our worship instead of seeing Jesus as the Lord of all, the source of all of it. Now, here's the awesome thing that happens. We see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We recognize that he alone is the place where we can meet with God, where we can have our sins forgiven. And what happens is our whole life gets reoriented by him. And we actually become unified with him where the Bible tells us that we become part of the temple as living stones, which we already read this morning from 1 Peter. We become part of God's structure he's building. Jesus is the cornerstone. He gives the foundation to it and the direction to the building. And we become part of the building he's building. It's awesome. We become a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, Ephesians 2 tells us. That's who we are for those who believe. And for those who do not believe, Jesus is just a stone that you reject. You know, I come from the land, I come from New England, and one of the greatest things about New England, among many things, is the stone walls. Oh, they're awesome. You know, most of them have fallen down. They used to be the boundaries. They used to, they had to do it because they had to clear the rocky fields. You can't grow anything. But these stone walls are amazing. And having a really nice stone wall that aren't a lot of them around anymore, there are these, these incredible artists who go and make stone walls for you. 
They rebuild a stone wall or they make one that looks like one of those old stone walls. And sometimes they're finely crafted and they need just the right rock to put in just the right place that's highly visible and will keep the whole wall together. And they'll look through hundreds of rocks until they find the right one right for that corner. Imagine if the builder of that stone wall came to the perfect rock that he's been looking for. He throws it away. That's what Jesus is saying the people are doing, the religious leaders especially. They come to the cornerstone, the one they've been waiting for for millennia, and they just throw it away. But not all of them. Some of them see that stone. It's what they've been waiting for their whole lives. The people of God have been waiting for for their whole history. My prayer is that none of us leave here this morning without seeing Jesus as that precious, promised cornerstone. Well, the builders rejected it. You couldn't trust their word because they were in it for themselves. But Jesus, for any one of us who turns from our sins and trusts him as the sure foundation, the temple, the priest, the lamb we all desperately need to have true communion with our creator, to make this place a house of prayer where we truly come here and commune with God and then we take that into our weeks. Letting Jesus the Lord rearrange the furniture of our lives in whatever way he wants. And whatever that means, God has sent messengers over and over again in amazing kindness and grace and sovereign intentionality. The messengers of the prophets who are nothing impressive externally. The message ultimately of Jesus, they all told us was coming. He's the message, but, but then the, the word of God is the message he gives us, but all sorts of messengers come our way. This sermon this morning is a message to you from God, as it stayed as close as we can to his word. Messages you've heard throughout your life, sometimes suffering is the loudest, clearest message God sends someone at certain times in their lives. It's people, it's circumstances. God is always pressing home his reality to you. The question is, are you listening? Are you responding? Are you seeing Jesus as the one you desperately need? Or do you say, no thanks, I got it on my own? That's the question. If you're not a Christian here this morning, and if you are, as we continue to work out our faith with fear and trembling, we desperately need Jesus. He's the sure cornerstone. He's the temple. He's the place we meet with God. Let's trust him alone. Lord, help us as we go into each day, as we go into the rest of this day, as we go into each circumstance and challenge, difficulty, joy, disappointment, whatever it is, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, to know that Jesus alone is that cornerstone we desperately need. Lord, for anyone here who's never put their saving faith in Jesus, maybe they're religious, maybe they're nice moral people, but they've never gotten to the end of themselves and put their saving faith in Jesus, would you please make this morning that life-changing time for them? And for those of us who do know you, even if we've known you for decades, Lord, I pray that we would give you through your son and your word, the authority to rearrange the furniture of our hearts and our lives and whatever that means, whatever that looks like. And we pray these things in Jesus' 
mighty name. Amen.